Welcome to the Reology Podcast. My name is Scott Johnson. I'm not a trained theologian, nor do I have degrees in theology or the Bible. I'm just a regular guy who loves and follows God, but wanted to know if there was more to what I was experiencing in the world of church. This podcast is the collection of a journey to dig much deeper in the realm of faith. Reology is the study of the do-over. It's founded on the philosophy and principle of stopping and thinking, especially when it comes to what I know about God, Jesus, and ultimately what this has to do with me. Now, if you listened to the first episode and have chosen to follow the rabbit hole to see how deep it goes, I am very glad to have you. But if this is your first encounter, I strongly encourage you to stop right now, go and listen to the first episode, because it will give you a foundation of the conversation that we're trying to start. But first, allow me to just a moment here to make a very, very clear disclaimer. For some people who did listen to the first foundational episode of Rheology, you might have walked away thinking that I have an axe to grind with Christianity, or maybe more specifically the church. Maybe maybe I'm just holding a grudge, you know, that I was burned somewhere in ministry or the church in my past, and, and I, that's, that's turned me away from church. Well, first of all, I'm very sorry that you may have those feelings, but... The truth is, I'm I'm not holding a grudge, and nor do I have an axe to grind. I mean, I don't even own an axe. That's why I have to keep borrowing my neighbors, and that reminds me, I probably ought to get that back to him. But I, I will confess, there have been several situations and several conversations and circumstances in my experience as a Christian and a full-time minister that have caused me to embrace the philosophy of rheology, to stop and think. Those things brought me to a point, an, an opportunity actually, to, to begin the process of building my own personal faith. And what would that faith be built upon? Would it be built upon tradition? Would it be built upon emotion or principle? Or maybe, maybe the truth. I had a choice, a choice to either continue to just go with the flow of popular opinion or theology or maybe just to investigate on my own this relationship with Jesus a little further. And, of course, I chose the latter. And during that investigation, my eyes and life have been opened up to things that I never knew, nor even cared to question. Well, here's a, uh, a true story from the legends of ministry past, a.k.a. stuff I experienced in full-time ministry. So... Several years back, when I was a full-time student minister working with teenagers, I was required to attend the monthly elders meeting, and I was uh, asked to give a five-minute update on what I was, what was going on in my area. These elders meetings mostly made me want to run out of the building, screaming at the top of my lungs, with my hands flailing in the air, disappearing into the cornfield, never to be seen again. To say the least, they were pretty much a waste of my time. Out of all the typical traditional, you know, quote-unquote meeting stuff, like I propose we do this, do we have a second, I have a second, yes, all those in favor, all those against, yay, nay. Aside from that, there, there was this one phrase that I kept hearing on a consistent basis. And it was the phrase, we need to check to see what the bylaws say. Now this phrase was uttered anytime someone questioned if we, or more specifically the elders, 
could actually make a new decision or doing something different or creating something new. And at the time, I wasn't really aware of what the bylaws were or why we had them. For the most part, I just didn't even question it at first. But after continually hearing this phrase, it kind of dawned on me that you know, we weren't going to get anything done or really make any necessary changes with these bylaws looming over our heads. It was time to act. I needed to figure out what they were and why we relied on them so much. Some questions that immediately came to mind were like, first of all, you know, are they in the Bible? The second, uh, what did they say and what these things say? And third, of course, was, uh, you know, where do they rank when it comes to following what God wants? So I did some digging. Well, come to find out, bylaws are required by the U.S. government, mainly the IRS, for a nonprofit to be approved for tax-exempt status. Basically, they're just a technicality mandated by the U.S. government. They're not in and of themselves a governing document. God didn't write them, shocker. God didn't tell us to establish them. The Bible doesn't even mention bylaws at all. And they definitely are not part of the leadership of the body of the Christ a.k.a. the Ecclesia. Well, I took my findings to the very next elders meeting. So I presented them with with what I found, and I educated these men of God about the origins of the bylaws and why we are supposed to have them to be qualified as a nonprofit tax-exempt organization, And that they are not meant to be a replacement for the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't be making this recurring statement of, we need to check to see what the bylaws say. Instead, maybe, just just maybe, we should should pray about these decisions. and, And seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. You know, what would make God happy instead of the bylaws or the government? So after my presentations, the elders kind of looked at me, gave me this look like, you know, I was just a kid and I didn't really know better. They kindly shook their collective heads and said, Scott, well, this is just how we do things. So here, in the light of the obvious truth, these elders of the church, the church of Jesus, that is, they chose not to believe. And instead, they continued to do things that were just simply passed down to them. I personally think that most Christians are going through their daily spiritual lives just blindly following along the example of the Christian generation that's gone before them. And that generation did the same thing. And the generation before did the same thing, and so on, and so on, simply passing down faith. You know, we accept a lot of things as truth without ever taking a moment to just question and investigate. Probably because it's just easier that way. We live in a Christian era of going to church on Sunday, listening to the sermon, and taking his word for it. And that's it. Nothing more. 
We're basically just feeding on the scraps and we're starving our spirit. It's like we take our vitamin, right? Religiously. But we're not really doing anything about our diet. Now, I can't really totally blame the sheep for this. You know, it is the shepherd that sets the direction. And right now, this is the direction. The message is go to church, listen to the sermon, because it's the most important thing you can do in your relationship with God. Today's Christians are inheriting their faith. The church is setting the stage for people to do just that. They inherit their faith from the traditions, from the principles, from the Sunday school lesson, and from the sermon. They're definitely not encouraged to question, to investigate, or to rethink or research. Last words are historically famous. You know, that's where we get the idea of famous last words. Well, did you know that the last thing that Jesus said before he left earth, after his resurrection, was for us to make disciples of all people as we live life, as we go through life? That was the last thing he said, and he wanted us to remember that. That's why he said it last, because it's actually pretty darn important. It's what we're supposed to be doing. Most people don't realize and don't have the first clue of what this word disciple means. They probably just honestly think that it's just a position that Jesus gave people and have no idea that it's it was just actually a part of the culture. The word disciple simply means learner, student. So if we are being made into a disciple, a, a student, which that's the goal, then shouldn't our main attribute be one of learning? I mean, we should be actively becoming a student of God, not just hearing a message here and there and being fine with that, but instead actively investigating God. But instead, we've become students of tradition. We've become students of, of, of principle. We've become students of what we've, what we've heard was important and is important. And we've passed that down from generation to generation, and we've become fine with it. So l let me give you a, a quick example of something that we're fine with, and we just never question. And maybe this would be the first time that you've ever questioned this or even thought of this. But in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, we have a uh, historic account of the life of a guy named, you guessed it, Daniel. It says in the third year of the reign of the Hebrew king Jehoiakim, which is right around 605 B.C., this Babylonian king, guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, he took siege of the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. He conquered it. And he did what most conquering kingdoms did. He split up the people of the conquering kingdom, namely the royal and the noble families. And he brought them captive over to Babylon to live there. And they would also take some of their own high-ranking families and nobles, and they'd move them into Judah so they could kind of keep the peace of this newly expanded kingdom. He then took a select few of those captive people and he used them for his official purposes, you know, to serve in his court. He basically focused on the young because they were probably easier to reprogram. 
and they wanted to reprogram them in the ways of the Babylonians and their culture, their language, and most importantly, their gods. From among all of those that he took, the Bible specifically mentions four guys. And these four guys are Daniel himself, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All four from the same tribe, the tribe of Judah. And just like all of them and all the others taken, their names would eventually be changed to Babylonian names because they wanted to assimilate them into their new lives. So, Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar. Hananiah was changed to Shadrach. Mishael was changed to Meshach. And Azariah was changed to Abednego. Now, in the Hebrew culture, or actually any kind of ancient culture in those types of days, names were just not given to children because the parents liked them or liked the sound of them. They were given for a reason, a specific reason. There was a story behind them. Mostly specific for the Hebrew culture, their kids were given these names to honor God. Anytime you see the letters A-H or the letters E-L at the end of a name, not just a kid's name, but a name of a place or a name of a town, it refers to God somehow, some way. The A-H represents Yahweh. The letters E-L represent Elohim. And those two are personal names of God. So, for instance, the word Daniel means God is my judge. But his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects. Bel was the name of their chief god. Now, Hananiah's name means gift of the Lord. And they changed it to Shadrach, which means commanded by Aku, which was their god of the moon. Mishael, his name meant who is like God, our God. Elohim, who is like Elohim. Well, they just blatantly wanted to spit in God's face, and they said, all right, well, we'll change your name to Meshach, which means, well, who is like Aku? Once again, the God of the moon. And then Azariah's name meant God helped, Yahweh helped. His name is changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, who was their God of wisdom. So, these guys' names went from being God-honoring names, you know, our God, the God we serve, Elohim, Yahweh, to names that honored the fake gods of Babylon. And we all know what happened to these guys, right? They were tested. Their lives were threatened. They were threatened to live out their new lives with their new names, to forget their old Hebrew God, and to, to embrace and honor and live for their new Babylonian gods. But of course, they never gave in, and they were miraculously saved by God and God's intervening in a den of lions and intervening in a fiery furnace. They honored God, and they never, never lived out their new names. So here's the questioning. Here's the stopping and thinking. Why then, when teaching these stories in Sunday school, 
in preaching sermons about them from the stage. Why do we continue to call three of these four men by their slave names? I mean, we use Daniel. We call Daniel, Daniel. But we never use Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. I mean, I'd be safe to say that most people, most Christians, they've never even heard of these names. They never even knew that their names were changed. They've just always known them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, is it because it's easier to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Maybe it's more fun to say that. Is it easier to teach our children these names, even though we're honoring fake gods while we're doing it? Maybe that was the initial idea centuries ago. Who knows? But, But since then... I mean, we've just gone along with it. We just continue just to go right along with it without ever thinking about what we're doing. Now, now some will say, you know, hey, Scott, well, the Bible does call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yes, it does. But in chapter four of Daniel, it, it starts calling Daniel. Once again, it starts calling him Belteshazzar. For two whole chapters, they call him that. But instead, we use the name Daniel. His God-honoring name. Why not the other three? I'm thinking if these guys knew that their legacies were passed down through history using their slave names, I mean, it'd kind of feel like a major slap in the face, don't you think? You know, as I stated in the first episode... Stopping and thinking is one of the most powerful things we can do. It makes everything we do from that point on more effective. We can live a more purposeful and effective life by simply stopping and thinking and questioning why. It's pretty clear throughout the entire Bible that God is not seeking our rituals, but instead he's seeking the very beating of our hearts. He's not looking for those who worship him in word alone. He's working, looking for people who worship him in spirit. He wants us to want to know him. He wants us to choose to love him and serve him. He doesn't want us to just know of him. He wants us to know him. And there's a major difference there. To know him on a much deeper level, much deeper level. But never really researching God or, or, or digging deeper would be like getting to know someone but always calling them by the wrong name or always misspelling their name. If people started spelling my name with one T, I'd be like, I've known you for like 10 years. <laughs> How much do you really know me? I mean, if I did know someone for 10 years and let's say they bought me a Christmas gift, I open it up and it's a Notre Dame hockey jersey. I'd probably be shaking my head thinking, uh, uh, what the? (laughs) And they would say, well, you know, I'd heard that you were from Indiana. That's why I got you that. Well, yes, I'm from Indiana, but I am not a Notre Dame fan, and I don't even like hockey that much. That's what assumptions do without really knowing. A relationship with God is not based upon rituals, nor is it based upon traditions or principles, and it's definitely not based upon assumptions. You can't truly love God 
And you can't truly serve God by just doing what has been done by the generation before. He doesn't want you to just blindly love him. He wants you to know why you love him. He wants you to know why you're serving him. He wants you to know why you're following him. It's it's kind of important. And it might be time for us to start taking an inventory of what we really know about God and what we know about Jesus in the Bible. They're, they're kind of important. I mean, if you're going to center your life around something, you probably ought to understand it. I'm not asking you to become a Bible expert, not that that wouldn't hurt, but, you know, to at least dig deeper and not just to take someone's word for it and be okay with it. Having an inherited faith just isn't real. It started with someone a long time ago, and it's just been passed down over and over. Jesus was sent to this earth for us to discover our own faith, one that belongs to us individually, one that we possess and we cling to, and most importantly, one that is founded upon truth instead of tradition. So if you were living in Israel in the days of Jesus and you were a boy, starting at the age of five and sometimes six, you, along with all the other Jewish five and six-year-old boys, you would be going to your local synagogue every day until you were right around the age of 10 to learn the basic Torah, the law of the Bible. The first five books. In the Greek, that's the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament of the Bible. You would learn those. And not only learn those, you would memorize them. Yeah, you heard me right. Memorize the first five books of the Bible in five or four years. Every Jewish boy. So at the age of 10, then when you were done with that stage, only a select few of the best would go on to the next level for four more years to learn. And eventually, here it is again, memorize the rest of the Bible. Sounds unbelievable, but true. Now, after that, at the age of about 14-ish, only the best of the best would then apply to a rabbi, Roboni, teacher, and hopefully get chosen as an official disciple, student. That student would live with the rabbi on a day-to-day basis, learn from the rabbi in hopes of one day becoming the rabbi. If you became a rabbi in your in that culture, it was one of the highest honors. Every boy dreamed of being a rabbi. But only the best of the best of the best became a rabbi. But that's what everybody's goal was is to be one day become a rabbi. If you never memorized the whole Bible, well, you wouldn't be picked, of course. I mean, if you never even took the time to learn the Torah, you had no chance. Jesus' famous last words was more of a set of orders. This is what you're supposed to be doing from here on. Make disciples. And only a rabbi can make disciples. 
So Jesus actually intends for every one of us to become a rabbi, a rabboni, a teacher. He was expecting every one of us to become a teacher. But you, the reality is this, is that you can't become a teacher without first becoming a student. How many of us Christians can truly admit that we have immersed ourselves in learning from the teacher? How many can say that they are actively involved in becoming a true student of who God is, of who Jesus is, and, and, and who we are in relation to that? Instead, I believe that most are just feeding on scraps, and they're okay with that. I mean, they're okay with letting someone else do the work. And unfortunately, even the shepherds are okay with that. And people's mentality is this, just, just tell me what to believe. They're okay with inheriting someone else's faith. Instead, I would like to encourage you to be willing to rethink, research, and rediscover the mysteries of God, the life of Jesus, and the purpose of the ecclesia. What I'm asking you to do, it's not an easy task, nor is it popular. I mean, some might just tell you, hey, you know, it's just go to church and listen to the sermon and all will be good. Unfortunately, though, that's not nearly enough. Take hold of this faith in God with both of your hands. Claim it for your own. Investigate God. Get to know him on a much deeper level. But just remember that it all starts with a willing spirit to stop and think. If you spend any time learning about this Jesus in any of the four books dedicated to his life in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll quickly see that his message revolved completely around this very same mindset. Stop and think. Again, thanks for your time. We're going to be next uh, back next episode for sure, discussing the truths of Christianity, some of those that you may have never known before. They may sound crazy, but true. See ya.